0: Every aspect of your e-commerce business impacts customer experience. From advertising and packaging, to product functionality, website usability, and even reliability. Your long-term growth and profitability will hinge on your ability to deliver the best experience for your buyers. And this podcast will show you how. Tune in monthly for actionable and insightful discussions with the brightest minds at the intersection of e-commerce and customer experience. Welcome to the e-commerce customer experience podcast presented by Digital Genius. I'm your host, Chris Kellner. Hello and welcome to another episode of the e-commerce customer experience podcast. I feel proud to have Steve Cleary as our guest for today. Steve has over 30 years of experience in e-commerce. He's currently the vice president of marketing at Sunrise Fresh and the chief pot stirrer and Next Level Brands. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much, glad to be here. Steve, can we just kick off? It'd be great to just learn a little bit about you and kind of how you built Next Level Brands.
1: My background basically is mostly all in the agency side of the consumer packaged goods business. Uh, It has been uh, retail and e-commerce both. I had an agency for 25 years in San Francisco. We did a lot of the data analysis as to things like changing prices, and promotions, and what in the U.S. is called trade spending, which is that amount of money that goes to retailers and to other entities to try to help you sell your products. And then when I decided to take a pivot, as it were, I was approached and very interested in several startup brands. These were in the Better For You, Disruptive Space, Health Space. And I really wanted to basically help them out and be able to give to them kind of how the industry works for the big guys, what they should expect, how they could scale. All those things were very important. And so that's really why we started Next Level, which came from the phrase, of course, of taking your brand to the next level. So that's what we did. We just added the extra X. Very cool. And I think as we're getting introduced, it needs to be asked, why would you call yourself the chief pot stirrer? <laughs> <laughs> when, when the company started about seven years ago, my title was chief brand developer, and at some point in time, I was doing a workshop actually with a bunch of people. And they, and they were all kind of either starting out of the business or had a small brand that they were, were trying to launch. And somebody approached me and said, you know, that's kind of a, it's you and, and your wife and a couple of other freelance people. It's kind of an ostentatious title. And I went, well, ostentatious title. Okay, I got to find something else. And one of the folks that I do a lot of work with has talked about having me come into a meeting. He goes, I love it when you're in the meetings because you always come in and stir the pot. So I'm a change agent. And when I come in into a meeting and whatever else, I don't want people to look at things the way they have looked at them for years. I want them to change how they're thinking. So I just decided to adopt the chief pot stir, and, and it stuck. I love it and definitely speaks of the disruptive
0: influence, which I'm sure a lot of the brands that you have work on. I see you founded the company with your wife. You know, we would love to, I'm sure the audience would love to know, you know, typically running businesses with with family members doesn't always work out, but it sounds like, you know, you're doing
1: really well. So it'd be great to know. How did that come about? So I'll I'll preface it by saying we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. Congratulations. And what happened was, is that when we were in still in San Francisco, my wife worked for a place called Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center, which was uh, basically a co-working space and a, a training space where you incubated companies. So she was very, you know, very oriented to working with entrepreneurs and, and she actually, a couple of clients we were working with together. And one day it became kind of like, well, okay, why don't you just help me out with this? And we were working with a company that was doing supplements. It was a couple, they were a couple too. And, you know, basically I realized that she was doing about 90% of the work of what we were doing because they were real early startup mode. And so she was training them and coaching them as much at being business people as she was a specific CPG business. So that's how we did it. And the the key to the success of keeping it going is a clear division of (laughs) responsibilities. That's the main thing is, you know, don't try to do each other's stuff and and keep it a little bit separate and be very communicative in meetings. Make sure a lot of times you think, you know, it's my partner, it's my spouse. She's going to know what I mean. No. Not necessarily. It, that's different than romance. It's different than marriage. You got to be very transparent and very explicit. I think that's
0: probably a lesson a lot of us can have, just in life,
1: not just in work. Clear division of responsibilities, and then everything will work fine. So, what side of the business is it that you specifically focus on now? So, basically, mine is is mainly focused on marketing. And so, you know, mar- there's there's sort of sales, marketing, and operations. And I'm a marketing person, although I do quite a bit of work in sales and occasionally stuff in operations, because with smaller companies, those lines are not so you know equally divided. You can't necessarily know what's a lot of people, as a matter of fact, misunderstand the difference between marketing and sales. So or marketing and operations they, they can cross. So that's what I mainly do now. And so I work for a couple of companies as a fractional VP of marketing. And that means that I do the responsibilities of a VP of marketing, but on a part-time basis, although it seems it's more full time lately than it's been in a while so
0: okay and i see you know you've worked with a lot of big organizations like nestle, Del Monte, johnson and johnson you know could you tell us about kind of some of the challenges that maybe they've encountered and how you have helped them deliver the best products to their
1: customers when we originally set up trade marketing the agency that did the data analysis and and trade spending analysis it was a brand new field it was um, you know basically the early 90s and Companies that were had an advertising budget of maybe $20 million were spending $200 million in trade funds. And for the $20 million, they had all these agencies and professionals and creatives and media people helping them spend that money. The $200 million was mostly being spent by the sales force with not a lot of analysis as to what was working, what wasn't. Is there any ROI? Can we do this better? And that really became our niche that we basically brought that up and, and and started working with these companies. So when we would do a project for somebody like a Nestle, for instance, we could be talking about saving them 10, 20 million dollars a year in these funds. So either they could put it to the bottom line, some companies did, some companies reinvested it in trying to you know grow the brand even further. The big difference, you know, of course, between the smaller and the larger companies is that the larger companies have a lot more resources. Uh, smaller companies tend not to, but they actually play in pretty much the same field. So if you're a, a startup CPG company and you've got an energy bar, you're playing against Nestle because Nestle's got Power Bar there. You're playing against Cliff Bar, you know, which is now taken over by Mondelez. So you're all in the same stores. You're all in the same e-commerce platforms. You know, you're playing against those guys. And and the big difference, of course, is the big guys have resources and a lot more cash, which is very important.
0: I'm sure a lot of our audience is small scale-up businesses starting up for the first time, it'd be great. You know, what advice would you give brands right now, kind of who are planning for the future, who are the ones
1: that are competing against the likes of Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, et cetera? Unfortunately, the most important thing is to be able to have access to capital. I've seen and worked with a number of really great brands who didn't make it because they either didn't have the money to scale or didn't have the money to market. And it is true that when you get a placement, you know, in a Tesco or a Kroger or wherever you're going, you're sitting right next to Nabisco, Nestle, right? Right? It's the same shelves. It's the same. It's the same rules. And you know, the consumer comes in, looks at the products. They don't necessarily know the difference. They don't necessarily know yours is better. So you've got to have a good product. Always, you need very clear brand communication and product communication. So it can't be nebulous that your bar gives you twice as much energy as a power bar. That's got to be very clearly communicated. And then again, you've got to have funds and funding is really where a lot of companies run into trouble.
0: Yeah. So maybe just picking up on, on top of those themes, you know, when you think about clear product differentiator, you know, for new, I guess, challenger brands, you know, where would you advise them on the interesting CPG sectors that they might focus on right now? Well,
1: What we've had happen kind of in a accelerated phase because of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, we had a a great interest in what we'll call the better for you space and in functional foods. So foods that clearly delivered some type of benefit. For instance, with dried fruits, you get a clear benefit of not only whatever is in the fruit, but you also get fiber, which is great. And again, it's all that gut health, all the other stuff. That was out there. Then all of a sudden you have a worldwide pandemic. COVID hits and suddenly people who've never looked at a label on the back of a box before start thinking about immunity, start thinking about what am I putting in my body? At the same time that happens, they stop shopping in stores, except for, you know, the basic necessities and they go online to shop. So those two things basically accelerate all of the brands that were in the e-commerce space in the better for you. And by better for you, I'm not talking pure vegan, pure organic, pure. I'm just talking about less, like less sugar, right? And and no triglyceride thing, none of that stuff. It's just simply, is this better for me, my family, and I'm now going to start paying attention to it. So that rocketed. We went probably close to 10 years acceleration in e-commerce in food and beverage. Okay. E-commerce all your road developed in electronics at that point. But food and beverage, people were saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to buy my cereal off Amazon. Well, you know, Amazon sells as almost as much cereal as Walmart does in the US. So guess what? People are. That's really what it, what it came down to. And so we went through this incredible fast pace. A lot of companies needed to scale up. A lot of companies didn't. A lot of larger companies missed it. They just said, no, this is never going to work. And some of that has gone back down. So the curve has gone back down in the last year a little bit, but it's still way higher than it would have been without the pandemic. So those are the accelerants. And for most of the brands that are in that space at this point, it's basically keeping up. It's finding your audience niche, communicating to them, and being available across platforms. That's the main thing. And then you step into retail. And what would you say as a kind of a brand you're
0: always thinking do you go and distribute it across Walmart where you need a, a lot of capital a lot of product or do you focus online or do you focus on the Amazon channel for a brand that is kind of weighing up you know those three and probably
1: many other options you know what would your advice be i think probably the best thing to do is to is to look at where the brand is at present so most people when they start a lot of food and beverage starts on a local basis and you know, in, in my interviews and stuff with founders, I find there's just a ton of founders out there who started businesses because either they or someone in their family had some type of challenge. So, right, so a guy starts a cleaning, you know, basically a natural cleaning business because his wife is severely allergic to the commonly used household cleaners. And he starts a business. He starts it locally and then you know, begins to distribute. So so in the U.S. particularly, it's very regional. So you can start out on a regional basis and you can be selling, you can find products that are in Southern California that you don't find in New York. So you start out on a regional basis. What e-commerce has done now is sort of changed that, you know, that path because you don't have to do that anymore. You can very easily get your product on Amazon. You can get it on Abound. You can get it on you know, Fair, which are wholesale platforms. You can do all that right now with uh, with touches of buttons. So that's that's great. What that allows you to do then is to basically what we call proof of concept, which is you may think that your grandmother's brownie recipe is the best in the world, but are other people going to feel the same way about that? Or you know you may say, oh this 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 takes care of my nasal problem. Okay, whatever. But we've got to prove that with consumers out there, and you used to have to do that in a very kind of protracted way on a local basis. And you did sampling in stores and you went, you did farmers markets and fairs and all that. You can do that now. And most people still do. But on top of that, now we have this huge platform called Amazon. We have Walmart marketplace where you can put a product on there and get this immediate feedback as, which is a marketer is what I love about it is it's like a sandbox that you've never had before. When you ship stuff to retail, you see it and maybe it shows up on the shelf two weeks later and you get your sales reports back a month later and at the end of the quarter you do a reconciliation in amazon i can go and raise the price of a product 10 percent today and look at it tomorrow and see what the react you know what happened did people stop buying it did nobody pay attention that it was 10 percent higher it's amazing that, that you can do that so i think that's really where the brands go now is is Let's get on something like Amazon, something like Walmart, where we have immediate analytics and a huge audience out there and see if your product, in fact, will, will sell.
0: Okay, interesting. And kind of building that one stage further. So imagine, and I'm sure you're, you're working with a lot of brands all the time like this. You've, you've got a product, it's differentiated. You're seeing a little bit of traction. And now you're thinking about how you're going to raise some capital. And obviously, where we are right now is very different to where we were two or three years ago. It's becoming a lot, lot more challenging. What kind of channels are you advising you know the brands that you're working with to go to when looking for capital?
1: If you're in, in that stage, and, and pretty much you're going to be in that stage from the day you start until the day you sell it in some form or another. So the idea is, is how can you show investors that your product, first of all, is, you know, is, is your concept is validated? And one of the easiest ways, again, to do that is on an e-commerce platform. I happen to like Amazon because of the size of the platform. So you can probably do it on Walmart marketplace as well, but I think their audience is a little different and it's about 20% of Amazon's audience. So still, again, if you're gonna have the best chance in the world, you probably wanna be on Amazon. If you are looking to sell a wholesale product, then you have like, you know, you have a bound, and you have Fair and you have Thrive if you're organic. You have Boxed if you're a larger, and these are sort of specialty. Boxed is a lot of business to business. So it's you know buying a whole case of paper towels for your business as opposed to selling one type of paper towel. So if, you, if you're into basically food, beverage, and supplements in the health and wellness sector, probably Amazon is where you want to start because if I have good Amazon numbers, an investor will listen to my story.
0: Okay, interesting. Now imagine so we've got on Amazon, we're we're growing really fast. You know, the next challenge for a brand is when it comes to customer support. You know, how do we efficiently support, set up and scale customer support, especially on Amazon, which is not a particularly easily channel to do that? What would be your best practices that you've seen with some of the brands that you're working with in terms of how to develop a really good customer support channel?
1: You make a good point. Amazon doesn't make it easy and they've made it harder. But Amazon is what they're trying to do is they're trying to protect as much as they can, the relationship with that consumer so that you don't co opt them over to your website or your, you know, whatever, whatever you're trying to do. It's fair, but you as a brand, as a product manufacturer need to have some type of relationship with that consumer regardless. So the first thing I talk to brands about is when you're doing fulfillment of the product, if you're not doing it FBA, or even if you, you are, you can put in the in the boxes some type of communication, thank you, or whatever to that consumer. I think it's very important for brands that are starting out. So it can be a simple little card that says, you know, thank you for your purchase or whatever. I worked with a coffee company where the two founders are one's a policeman, one's a fireman. It's a first responder coffee thing, whatever, and they sent out a little card that said, thank you, but I suggested, I said, hey, why don't you guys do a thing with a picture of you two and a little letter and it's auto sign, you know, it's signed on the bottom, but it's a printed signature, but it's much more personalized, much more in your brand, you know, building your brand story to hear from you guys, thanking me for buying the coffee than it is to just get a little notes. You can do that. I also try to get people to include if they can, if you're going to print something, and put it in the box or send it out in your fulfillment is to put an incentive in there for that consumer to buy another product. So it can be a coupon, it can be a gift with purchase, so something like a coffee mug for the coffee guys. Any of those kind of things where you just add that little extra in there and a little reminder that, oh, yeah, I do that. I'm a big believer in subscriptions on Amazon, if you can do it too. If you can make a subscription reasonably, inexpensive from your point of view, from the manufacturer's point of view. It is a great way because once people start getting something on a regular basis and you got the consumption part of it worked out, they usually don't stop it unless there's like really something going on, like getting laid off from a job or something. I mean, people st- tend to stick with those subscriptions. And I really, I really like that as well. The last thing that, You know, again, Amazon, you can't connect directly with the consumers, whoever, but you can talk in your space, in your website, in your sales materials. You can talk about being on Amazon and how, you know, it's really great if you buy from Amazon, because one of the, one of the things that I find a little confusing is sometimes people look at Amazon and they think, well, they look at Amazon as if it was a store and saying, well, I need to be in this store and I need to be here and I need to be here, but but it's it's kind of a standalone. Well, it is, but all the basic same rules apply to the consumers that are shopping there. They're just shopping in a different channel. That's all. So anything you would do with your, you know, with your normal audience. And I also like the fact that if you can set it up, which we did with with Sunrise Fresh Dried Fruit, is they're primarily a ingredient manufacturer, although we do have a brand and consumer line. It's available only in e-commerce. And if you go to the website and you want to our website and you want to buy our product, you are taken to our Amazon company page immediately because that, that's where we sell. And we want to make sure that so I like when people are setting up their websites, there's a tendency on, I think on founders for in CPG to say, Oh, I want to have this great relationship and I want to know my audience and I want to talk to everybody. Well, you want the business to grow to a point where you can't be talking to all of your people all the time. So the great thing is, is take the fulfillment, take all the other stuff you're doing and use a platform to do that for you. That leaves you some time to talk to people. You'll still get feedback. You have the review system in Amazon, which now is no longer two-way. It used to be two-way. So I would tell people, make sure you stay on top of that. But now there's very little you can do about communicating for reviews if the reviews are negative or bad. So you kind of have to just live with what's there.
0: And for a subscription, would you do the subscription on Amazon? Or would you try and take the customer off Amazon and do the
1: subscription directly? I would do it on Amazon because I haven't found anybody yet that can do it cheaper than Amazon can do it. Now, Amazon's expensive. I'm not saying Amazon's not expensive. But if you compare the cost of Amazon to the cost of a normal distributor in the CPG world, Amazon is cheaper. A distributor is going to add 22 25 27% on top of whatever you're doing. And I, why worry about, again... You want to have the relationship. I get that. I understand that. But you can still have the relationship, but have Amazon do the fulfillment. And looking
0: to the future, as you said, I think you said you said previously that there was kind of 10 years growth in probably less than a year when the pandemic hit. And now we're in quite an interesting time where kind of things are leveling out, but still e-commerce is, has been a massive growth to where it was previously. You now, what would you predict? Kind of where would the trend, you know, if we were looking five years ahead in the world that you're living and
1: breathing where would you say the major changes will be for the there's obviously going to be continuing sets of changes i think one of the things that's going to be again an outgrowth of what this this whole pandemic shift did to us but the one that people don't necessarily think about is the buying system where buyers buy for retail stores buy for e-commerce lines or whatever has totally changed That used to be a person-to-person, physical, you know, you flew to Cincinnati and you pitched the Kroger buyers and you cut the product right there. They tasted it or drank the beverage, whatever it was. That was the way it That all went away. And what larger retailers found out was their buyers were much more efficient by not having to see vendors coming in all the time. That in fact, I can send you, as we're doing now, I can send you samples you can taste them wherever you are we can talk about it on zoom and in 15 minutes we're done so it that to me is the biggest shift of now founders have to learn how to be able to work through a video channel through zoom through google meet whatever they're doing they've got to be able to communicate all of that goodness and enthusiasm and passion and brand story through the screen because they're not going to most of the buyers are going to determine their fate they're not ever going to meet in person. Interesting. So if you were going to give a startup founder one piece
0: of advice, if they were thinking of you know, developing a new CPG brand, what would you say?
1: Inherit lots of money. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. seriously. <laughs> of all the pieces of advice that, you know, and wisdom and trying to share experience stuff from larger companies, whatever, the number one thing is still capital. You have to have funding. People that think they're going to bootstrap their way into success, I've met a couple. They were very fortunate, had very good products, but they still haven't grown and some of them don't want to grow. But if you really want to grow and you want to scale, it's going to require funding. So you have to make a decision, I think, at some point about how there's the mission and then there's the business building. And the mission is I want to deliver a better healthier baby food. The business mission is, in order to do that, I need to have a functioning business. It needs to make money. I need to you know, have a business plan. I need to have all these things. And you're going to require, at any stage, you're going to require capital infusion in order to do those things. Because the way the industry works is like a, a funnel. You start down here, actually, and you sell to 20 stores in your neighborhood. And then you sell maybe on Amazon, then all of a sudden you go to, you know, to a Safeway or an Albertsons and you go from 20 stores to 200 stores in one jump. Well, if you're making your own product in your kitchen, that's not going to work. So you've got to go and you've got to get equipment or you have to go to a co or a co-manufacturer and the co-manufacturer is going to want 50 to 100% upfront for the order and that requires money. And and scaling requires the same thing. As you, as you scale, the numbers get bigger and bigger, you keep adding zeros. It all requires funding along the way. So as a founder, your consideration needs to be how much of the company do I need to own? Do I want to own? How can I, you know, get funding that doesn't dilute my equity, which there's a lot of options out there. And one thing that's good about our sector right now is that prior, again, prior to the pandemic, whatever, food and beverage, health and wellness was not all that sexy as an investment vehicle. Now uh, it's come back and and those types of things, disruptive brands in particular, are very attractive to uh, investors and venture capital.
0: And, and Steve, if you were gonna pick out like one brand that you would kind of direct people when they're thinking about creating their new amazing idea that they could kind of look up upon or maybe you look upon it in your everyday, you know, which brand would you say that would be?
1: I think one of my favorites, and it's actually gone through a, a recent evolution, is Honest Tea. Seth Goldman, I, I did an interview with him just a little while ago. I've watched Seth's. When he started out, it was a pure organic tea in glass bottles, clean label. It was the first the first one in a line in the store or on Amazon of plastic bottles, stuff with sugar filled, just tremendous. And he bucked that trend. He built the business. And then as many entrepreneurs and, and founders want to do, he sold it to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was actually unable to make a go of it to their criteria, and so they ended up discontinuing the line. And Seth went back in to it called Just Ice Tea, went back into the tea business basically to help all the people who missed having having honest tea around. But honest tea is a great story from the idea, the building of it, you know, working your way up through these massive companies that. You know that are trying to put you out of business. And then finally, they decide to buy you. And then guess what? You end up back in the business because they, the larger companies don't have the cachet, don't have the brand story, they don't have the credibility. And inevitably, they try to cost-reduce the product, which many times causes it to be a, a, a whole different product than they bought.
0: Okay. Well, I know I'm, I'm going to go and have a look at Honesty, and, and I hadn't come across them before, but I will definitely go and have a look at them um, after this call. Well, Steve, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. I think, you know, for any first time founder or anybody growing their own CPG business, I know they would have had taken a lot of insight from the last 30 minutes. Now, I think my three quick summaries would be, you know, if you're starting out and you're creating a new brand, you need to think of three major things. You know, one, make sure you have a clear product differentiator in an exciting category. You know, two, make sure you're utilizing the channels that are out there today, like Amazon. And, and Walmart and three, most importantly, have access to a lot of capital. Well Steve, it's been amazing you having
1: you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciated having me on and, and doing it. A lot of fun. The e-commerce customer experience
0: podcast is brought to you by Digital Genius. Digital Genius uses cutting edge AI technology to streamline response times for support tickets. The platform allows for flexible integration to your existing systems and control over your processes, while significantly improving key performance metrics. To find out more about Digital Genius and how our intuitive platform combines AI integrations and workflows to make your customers, team, and mailbox happy, head to digitalgenius.com. Also, make sure to search for e commerce customer experience in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. On behalf of the team here at Digital Genius, thank you for listening.